Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Yarmo Kodalane, author of the book Trials of Resilience, How COVID-19 is Driving Economic Change in the Arab Gulf. Yarmo, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I uh, am an economic historian slash practicing economist. Uh, I was educated in the UK and the and the US, and I have been working in the Gulf region now for goodness me, uh, well over a decade, uh, both in Saudi Arabia and in in Bahrain for a number of years in in banking, uh, more recently working in different advisory capacities with the the government of of Bahrain and also in an executive role with a government fund that was set up about 15 years ago for the purpose of driving economic diversification, increasing economic participation and entrepreneurship. What was it that led you to write this book? Because it's 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 an interesting book. It's it's a book that's very much commenting upon this moment, but you're also talking about you know a lot of uh, broader changes that are taking place within the region. Yes, and it probably won't surprise you to hear that I I started out with the with the bigger story. So I was working on uh, quite a what's what's meant to be a, a comprehensive economic history of. The Gulf region, what I call the development uh, journey of the Gulf region, since time immemorial until uh, or into the future. Uh, it's in many ways uh, a unique and and a very exciting story that I feel hasn't been told uh, enough, uh, or perhaps hasn't been told in the way that I I think it it, it deserves to be uh, told. Um, and I was uh, making good progress, and then suddenly this uh, virus uh, appeared uh, on the on the scene. And what I didn't want to have is a situation where I 
finish that what I call the bigger project, and and then because of the disruptions of this of this pandemic, etc., people would sort of conclude within months that uh, that the book was no longer relevant. It was it was out of date. Many of the assumptions about the present and the future had been invalidated uh, by the uh, by the virus. Um, but also, what was quite interesting is that. When I then started looking at how governments in the region responded to this uh, virus, I quite quickly came around to the view that uh, what uh, was happening was, in fact, um, a case of that process of, of economic change, the economic paradigm shift that governments had been working on and talking about for for many years of that suddenly being accelerated because the uh, the virus the pandemic forced choices and imposed uh, behaviors that people had been talking about but all of this was happening much more quickly so so in a sense the virus became a, a, a catalyst of this bigger um, a process of of change and and I felt that that was a story in and of itself that sort of needed to be uh, told, while recognizing, of course, that telling something that is still happening is always a little bit risky because you never know how how things are going to work out in the end. And nevertheless, I, I I thought that uh, I could as I was reading your book that that a lot of what you're talking about could be so confidence because as you talk about it, as a catalyst, it's working with the elements that, as you make clear, are already there. And I was wondering if you could pr- uh, start us off with the examination of your book by perhaps setting the scene and talking a bit about uh, the uh, Gulf economies and what. Uh, was happening in them in, say, the decade or so prior to uh, the identification of of the trend, of the spread of COVID nineteen to the area. Right. So uh, maybe for a minute, I I'll step further back uh, because the the Gulf region, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, is really quite a unique geographic region. Uh, it is right in the middle of the old world with excellent connectivity because of its geography, but of course, very extreme uh, climatic conditions. And with the exception of its hydrocarbons plenty, it doesn't have a lot by way of, of natural resources. It is very uh, little arable land, uh, etc. And what this meant historically is that this was a region that had a very, very small uh, resident population. Of course, it had its moments of of uh, relative prosperity in the past because of trade, because of of pearling. Uh, but but by the 1930s, things were looking quite quite bleak with the with the Great Depression and the uh, sort of appearance of of uh, pearly culture, uh, etc. And then out of nowhere comes this. Uh, uh, black gold, the discovery of oil uh, initially in Bahrain in uh, the late spring of 1932 and then fairly quickly in the rest of the region. And suddenly it, it catapults this 
this sparsely populated and extremely poor region into one of the wealthiest uh, parts of the of the world and of course the the 1970s in a sense became the peak of of the uh, of this initial phase of expansion when these countries really had some of the highest living standards uh, on the on the globe uh, but what's what's interesting about oil of course is oil is a is a finite resource uh, and what we've started to see in recent years is that the oil narrative has been has been changing because of energy efficiency, because of new energy forms, of course, the North American uh, shale revolution. And, and, and more recently, of course, the uh, increasingly um, urgent discussions, debates around climate change. And what this has meant is that it's put the idea of economic diversification on the policy agenda in the Gulf um, for some time. Actually, the, the initial discussions in this regard happened in the, in the 1960s in a, in a more structured manner. But really, uh, this has always been part of the debates, how to handle the oil wealth, how to make sure that once oil run, runs out or oil becomes irrelevant because it's too expensive to extract or people no longer use it or whatever reason, there is something that these countries will be able to fall back on in terms of uh, sustaining people's living standards and and livelihoods. And, and, and this is something that has then been leading to these various economic strategies and, and, and visions that the regional governments have been uh, publishing the earliest in the 1990s, but especially over the past 10, 10, 15 years, of course, the most recent one of these was the Saudi uh, Vision uh, 2030. And, and why the, the reason why this uh, discussion was sort of increasing uh, in urgency before COVID-19 was because it was becoming increasingly evident that the kind of trend growth that the Gulf countries were achieving was, was declining ever so gradually, but disturbingly consistently, and had declined to the neighborhood of maybe two, two and a half percent a year, which is uh, uncomfortably close to the natural rate of population growth. So, so the economic realities were quite un- uncomfortable from the perspective of increasing people's living standards, which is, of course, something that most governments around the world would like to do. And the reason for that is because the, because the oil market dynamics had changed. So that powerful engine that had fueled the economic growth, development, prosperity of these countries for many decades was no longer doing that at a rate that would more than make up for the uh, population growth rate. And the extraordinary boom that these countries experienced sort of soon after the turn of the millennium, when, when if you like, the Dubai model put, made infrastructure, whether it was connective infrastructure, it was residential, commercial infrastructure, a very, very important growth driver for these countries. Of course, the reality in that area as well, you cannot cover every square inch of 
uh, an economy with infrastructure, certainly not if you want a return on, on investment. And there were already growing concerns about duplication around sustainability, uh, but also um, very clearly uh, uh, the uh, infrastructure story was was no longer uh, delivering the, the growth impact that it had uh, done earlier on. So the search for alternatives was on, and then came COVID. I was wondering if you perhaps elaborate a bit upon what you've seen as the short-term impact of COVID. It's something that everyone is very familiar with, but uh, unless you happen to live in the region, you may not be aware of how it, its particular impact upon uh, the communities that we're discussing. It, how, is, how has COVID-19 been felt and how have the uh, nations of the Gulf region been responding to it? Yeah, so I think also one of the many reasons why I wanted to write down this story is that I think the um, Gulf countries really and 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 truly rose to the occasion and and approached this very uh, challenging uh, situation uh, with a very realistic approach. So while there were countries out there that sort of we're ready to shut down everything and wait for this bad dream to to pass. And, and, and there were countries that sort of decided, uh, we'll just live with this and soon enough it'll, it'll subside. I think the Gulf countries early on uh, embraced a, a, a very pragmatic approach, which at the beginning, of course, recognized there, there wasn't an available cure or mitigant for for the pandemic. And and therefore, it was essential to find a way of striking an appropriate balance between economic continuity, so maintaining as high a degree of normal economic activity as possible, while, of course, managing the the public uh, health risks. Now, some people will say, well, the Gulf countries had an easier time of this than many other countries, for instance, in the North Atlantic space, because the population here is is much, much younger. But what the Gulf countries also did is they they communicated the need for, for striking this balance quite quite clearly to their populations they they made a big investment in in quite simple and quite cost effective ways of containing the spread of the virus for instance by mandating the wearing of of masks uh, early on they also invested heavily in testing and and tracing capabilities so the idea was that when you knew where the virus was and how it was spreading, it was much easier to allow people to go about their their daily lives, provided the safeguards were in, in, in place. And then, of course, at the same time, they adopted various measures through monetary policy and, 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 and fiscal policy to ensure a... Uh, economic continuity and protect people's livelihoods during the initial lockdowns, which were never complete and which were quite short uh, by global standards. What the Gulf countries also did 
quite quite quickly is or as as early as possible is they started uh, these mass vaccination campaigns pretty much as soon as the vaccines became uh, available and and they have uh, to date achieved very high uh, vaccination rates which of course has limited the transmission of this disease so the so the approach has been quite dynamic and it's been quite quite realistic when, and what that has meant is that the economic disruptions, which of course have been significant everywhere uh, in the world, were much less than they uh, were in many other parts of the world, for instance, in the West. So the regional GDP, for instance, in 2020 declined by in the order of, of 4.5%. Uh, is not very much in, in, in global comparison. Uh, and while there were disruptions to employment, etc., those, again, were relatively small. And an economic activity more or less normalized relatively quickly. There were some spikes, but again, because of testing and tracing and because of the vaccinations, it was usually quite easy to identify and contain them very, very quickly. So what this has meant is that the uh, spread of this virus has been relatively limited in in global comparison. The mortality has been quite low, some countries extremely low in global comparison. And, and, And by and large, economic activity across the region now has normalized, bearing in mind, of course, this story is is far from from over. But but I think this is a bit like uh, that famous statement by Mario Draghi: "Will do what it takes to essentially make sure that the the risks are managed in an in an appropriate fashion." So we're we're talking about a region then that has had a, a fairly robust response to COVID nineteen. It's had an impact, but not as severe uh, economically as in some other areas. And, and you mentioned earlier how, in some ways, it is catalyzing a lot of the changes that are taking place in the Gulf economies. And you you spend the majority of your book uh, looking at these changes in uh, in a more systematic fashion. I was wondering if we could then if we could now uh, go and, and look at some of those changes you des- uh, described that uh, are, were taking place prior and, and consider how COVID-19 has been impacting them. You start with economic productivity. And it was it was a subject that uh, I you know found was very interesting because you talk about it both in terms of uh, economic policy among policymakers in the region prior to then and how it was underemphasized. You make a case for how that's something that's starting to change and how that change is very much for the better. Yes. So first of all, the reason why economic productivity matters is because it is, uh, experience shows, one of the primary drivers of living standards in the in the long run. Uh, and and, and in, in essence, of course, countries can generate growth um, from from through two main mechanisms. Number one is you put in more inputs, you put in more uh, w- workers or or machinery and equipment capital, uh, and and that gives you more output. Or through productivity, in other words, you find better, more efficient ways of either combining 
or utilizing these these uh, productive uh, resources, whether it is through through different uh, combinations or is through upgrading them in different ways, potentially motivating your your uh, em- employees better or organizing your 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 work better. The Gulf region has as many uh, emerging markets because they've had rapid population growth have have gone through a period of extensive growth where in fact in essence high living standards have come from putting pumping in more people more capital into the economy and of course when we look at the early 21st century a lot of these people who uh, became economically active were in fact immigrants from elsewhere in the world, world, the vast majority of them uh, uh, unskilled or relatively low-skilled uh, immigrants. And, and this is because of the fact that much of the economic activity at that point was in low-productivity sectors. So there was heavy investment in, in retail trade, in, in uh, restaurants, cafes, the tourism sector is not necessarily all low productivity, but but much of it went into hospitality, and 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 then of course uh, construction. Now, what the um, what's important about COVID nineteen is perhaps more than anything else is that it very quickly eliminated the. Uh, alternative of inaction or complacency. In a region where a lot of business models historically had been quite static, people had kept doing what they have been doing for years because overall the economy was growing because of population growth, because of increased government spending, etc. So in a certain sense, people weren't be- or companies weren't becoming more productive because there was no need to. They didn't, they didn't have to uh, do that. Now, of course, the lockdowns, the disruptions to economic activities very quickly made it difficult or made it impossible for many businesses to continue with their traditional way of operating. So, for instance, retail businesses, very hard to serve your customers if your customers are not coming to your shop, or if the government tells you to shut down your your shop for uh, public health reasons. And, and what then started happening is people, in many cases for the first time ever, started looking for alternatives. And, and one of the first things that happened was they started getting in, in serious about digital technology. Even if it was very simple, basic uh, products and online uh, presence, uh, uh, WhatsApp, uh, whatever, uh, we started seeing uh, much, much more home delivery, obviously by restaurants and, and cafes, which essentially kept many of these businesses alive, but also allowed some of them to change their business models and, and grow. We also started seeing more and more of this in the, in the retail uh, trade sector and, 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 and as well as many other, other parts of the economy. And what is important about this process, of course, is by and large, I always say productivity doesn't come 
or doesn't materialize because people love productivity. It happens because people don't have a have a choice. So in many countries, it happens because of uh, business competition. It happens because of regulatory pressure from the government, taxation, uh, trade unions, you name it. People have to think ahead. They have to always be looking for new, better, smarter ways of remaining competitive, uh, generating uh, an income. So what has happened in, in much of the corporate sector in the Gulf is that the old, what we say, rentier uh, mindset, this very static way of running your business has given way to a much more dynamic, forward-looking approach. Not universally, not everywhere, not always with a, with a massive uh, impact, but an inflection point has been has been reached what people have also i think increasingly started to see is that once they adopted uh, digital technology they their entire business model started to started to change so a lot of these low productivity businesses that grew rapidly in the uh, beginning years of this uh, century this millennium um, by adopting uh, digital technology, we're actually becoming less reliant on labor. And technology is a very different kind of input in the sense that, especially now with these software solutions and cloud computing, etc., it becomes a source of, of resilience uh, because it's continuously upgraded. It becomes a source of connectivity because essentially the world is your oyster. Uh, all of a sudden, you are no longer physically limited to a particular uh, market. Uh, and it becomes a source of security because, of course, a lot of these solutions incorporate cyber security, uh, etc. And at the same time, what's also started to happen is that because of these dislocations and that, that kind of help people see some of these structural imbalances in the economy, the, the whole idea of entrepreneurship has started to change. So I think people are looking for new ideas. They are considering uh, different perspectives on where to, to put their money. Of course, in many ways, this pandemic uh, validated the interest in startup, uh, technology-based startup entrepreneurship. So companies that are really all about addressing real economic problems in a, in a way that is, is scalable. Uh, and that's a big shift from the old idea of I'm going to open up a cupcake bakery because I've seen other people make money with cupcake uh, bakeries. Um, and, and, and in general, I think we are now looking at uh, uh, a future where more money is going to be going into higher productivity, scalable, export-oriented economic activities rather than the usual suspects of, of yesteryear. And, and all of this in, in total is, is good news for, for productivity. And it's, it's, it's one thing to talk about uh, all of this, that, as you just have, but one of the things that some people may not appreciate is the degree to which it involves really rethinking some of the fundamentals uh, or, or and some of the, the basic uh, ideas on which the economies in the region are, are based. And, and as you explained, this, you know, definitely, you know, requires rethinking 
the idea of what does the economy do, what is its focus should be, what its focus should be, uh, what you know, how, how that that growth should be driven. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain, you know, what are some of the fundamental changes that you anticipate taking place as a, or or, or are you that you see taking place as a result of uh, this uh, shift towards focus on greater economic productivity. Well, I think one of the shifts, and and and, and th- this is at the same time obviously a, a driver of this um, these changing uh, assumptions, changing behavior, is that I think it is now fairly widely accepted that the that the traditional role of what I call the oil government nexus, in other words, this generous, benevolent uh, government at the heart of the economy, which essentially drove almost all economic activity, that this is now, I don't want to say history, but it is changing uh, in, in very important ways. So one of the things that started happening already before COVID-19, uh, and, and really the trigger there was the two, late 2014 decision by OPEC to uh, change their uh, behavior in the oil markets and oil, mar- oil prices declined very sharply and all the Gulf countries sooner or later embarked on these ambitious uh, fiscal consolidation programs whereby they started eliminating these universal subsidies that used to be quite numerous, quite quite generous. They started introducing different kinds of taxes, not, notably the region-wide value-added tax and, and excise duties. Many of them started privatizing uh, government uh, property and became more and more serious about enabling private economic activity through uh, enabling business-friendly uh, regulation. Um, and, and it's quite clear this is central to the strategic visions of all the regional governments. And this is a process that is not only continuing, it is accelerating throughout the uh, pandemic. The, the regional governments, okay, they offer support where support was, was needed, but at the same time, they continue to reduce government spending in many areas. And for instance, the Saudi government very famously uh, tripled the rate of the value-added tax from uh, 5% to, to 15%. So what we are looking at is, is a future economic development path that is much, much less dominated uh, by the uh, by the government than it has been in the past, and where the government is increasingly positioning itself as uh, an enabler of of private sector activity. I talked about some of the changes that we've seen in the in the corporate sector. I think the the two main ones there is is revamping uh, quite radically the idea of entrepreneurship and and getting people more interested in uh, technology-based startup entrepreneurship, but also a new approach to setting up companies where traditionally it was always very much about a, the company would be the, a, a mirror image of its, of its founder. It would be a one-man or a one-woman shop. We are seeing more and more people, uh, teams of founders coming together, people with different skills, experiences, networks, etc., which, of course, significantly increases the likelihood of, of success. We are also seeing the shift away from 
what I call the usual suspects, these low productivity service and construction activities towards sectors like manu- manufacturing, technology, creative industries, uh, certain types of fintech, financial services, etc. All activities that can be can uh, service markets uh, well beyond the, the Gulf region. What's also very important and what's, what's very good for productivity is that I think some of the old assumptions about labor markets changed. And here, perhaps I should say by way of introduction, historically, the Gulf region was one where, with some exceptions, uh, the, the nationals would work in well-paid public sector jobs, and the private sector was, in some cases, entirely dominated by expatriate labor, much of of it relatively low-cost expatriate labor. Um, Now, what the pandemic has done is a a couple of things. I already talked about the shift away from labor intensity and towards capital intensity, which is reducing the reliance on low-cost labor and potentially beginning to transform jobs in in many sectors towards uh, greater skills and and moving moving from large numbers of low-quality jobs towards a smaller number of higher-quality jobs, which could then potentially offer uh, wages, salaries that the locals would find appealing and, and encourage increased uh, labor market participation in the private sector. What's also been been happening is that as in many cases people have worked from from home, it has it has made people less reliant on the old paradigm of, if you like, your nine-to-five or your full-time employment in a given physical location. This, of course, has been a a global trend. But I think in many ways the the change has been sharper in the Gulf where the gig economy, for instance, never was as big a thing as it is in the West, where really full-time employment uh, was was the norm and the labor law on these issues was quite rigid. So we've started to see remote employment, hybrid employment, part-time employment, uh, and, and also new ways of empowering um, self-employment. Uh, uh, what is particularly significant about this um, increased use of digital technology is that one of the characteristics of the Gulf labor markets was the gender imbalance, whereby male participation rates were more or less in line with the global norm. Female participation rates, again, with some uh, variation, were much, much lower uh, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Now, if we can get to a situation where for instance, Gulf women no longer have to face uh, what they see as an absolute binary choice between their family responsibilities and their careers. And bear in mind, Gulf women by and large are much more educated uh, than Gulf men. And therefore, if you like, the quality of that human capital is higher. Then we are potentially talking about uh, utilizing a significant product, productive resource much more 
efficiently than has been the case in the past. So again, uh, we are looking at an economy that is not only more productive, but is also more inclusive, is making greater use of the productive resources at home. It, what you're arguing for, in, in essence, is is a uh, more open economy as well that 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 than, than we've seen, uh, you know, you know, traditionally thought of in terms of the region. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how a more open economy is going to benefit the nations of the region, uh, you know, in the long term. You've described a lot of these changes that are taking place, and and how and how this how you see this trend as being the the, the and this, you know, move towards in a more open economy as being one that, you know, is, is the best, you know, envisionable future for the countries mm. of the region. Yeah. So maybe I should preface all of this by saying the Gulf countries are very open economies, although they are not necessarily always seen as such by the outsiders. I think I think many outsiders, when they look at the Gulf, Maybe places like Dubai aside, they see quite conservative traditional societies. But the reality is these are countries that are heavily, heavily dependent on uh, foreign trade. Uh, When you look at the total value of imports and exports, it's almost always more than 100% of, of GDP. They become increasingly receptive to foreign uh, investment, of course, because of the centrality of this region, but also because of the excellent uh, connective infrastructure that it has. There's a lot of traffic, uh, whether it's goods or people that pass through the, the Gulf region. And of course, this has always been a kind of a crossroads for people from 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 different parts of the world. And I already mentioned the fact that, for instance, the private sectors here are are very much um, um, dominated by non-Gulf nationals. At the same time, of course, what always tends to happen when there is economic stress is people tend to start focusing more on on distributional issues and certainly the numbers of non-nationals in the region because of these economic disruptions have uh, typically decreased uh, during the the pandemic. All the Gulf countries, for all kinds of understandable reasons, have a history of trying to stimulate national employment in part through things like employment quotas for for nationals, etc. So so there, there has been this distributional angle that has that has waxed and, and, and waned over time. But the reality is for the for the Gulf countries, openness is is not optional. It never has been, it it never will be. In the sense that these are very small markets, even though the regional population has has gone up significantly uh, during uh, or since the 20th century, uh, it is still very small uh, by international standards. And really the way these countries have made the most of their location and can make the most of their location is by capturing these flows and capitalizing on, on the uh, human capital uh, traffic that, that crosses the, the Gulf region. My point is openness is non-negotiable, but one can do much, much better 
on openness. And again, there are interesting things that have, have started to happen, I think partly because of COVID-19 and this rethinking that it has triggered. So for instance, while the uh, labor imports in, into the re- region used to be very much uh, tilted towards these low-cost laborers, the regional countries are increasingly cognizant of the need to compete on brains, compete on talent. And, and, and what they are recognizing more and more is the need to attract and retain skilled professionals, attract and retain people with capital that they can successfully uh, mobilize in the region. And one of the big changes in, in over the past couple of years has been the shift towards longer-term residency, and all the regional countries have, well, give or take, have now made it possible for qualifying non-nationals to, for instance, become naturalized, which is a which is a big shift from the default assumptions of, let's say, five, uh, ten years ago. Of course, um, in the past, oil uh, wealth uh, allowed these countries to uh, import virtually anything they, they wanted to. There is a, a growing recognition of the need uh, for these countries to start producing more locally and start exporting that. Of course, given the small local populations, you can only really realize the value by, by exporting. Now, when you're talking about things like digital uh, technology, creative industries, etc. All this happens in cyberspace. But but also when you look at the regional goods exports, these have been very much dominated by things like petrochemicals and metals, so energy-intensive manufacturing, huge opportunities to diversify, thereby creating more value and more employment opportunities, stretch out those value chains further, encourage more foreign capital to come in, not just as as a source of money, but also to create new links, new networks, exchange know-how, etc., and start moving these economies uh, further and faster in the in the direction of of knowledge based economies. One of the things that I also talk about in the book, as as the expectations regarding private companies, private capital, increase, and the governments of the region reposition themselves, there's also a need for the regional financial sector to diversify and to essentially do more for the economy, to become better at pooling and and allocating capital. And I think part of the way this can be done better, can be done more effectively, is by linking with global finance, which again is something that has been happening. So the regional banking sector is increasingly integrated, but also all the regional capital markets are now by and large listed on global exchanges, which brings uh, international money uh, into the Gulf. You've 
Uh, explained a lot about what's happening uh, in the uh, economies in the region. And, and you talked about COVID. I was wondering if you could just give us perhaps one uh, a- example or, or a couple of examples of, of how the pandemic uh, can help bring about these changes. I mean, we've been talking generally. I was wondering if you could perhaps you know give us uh, something a bit more specific and, and, ex- and explain how it you know, exactly how this catalyzation is taking place out of this, you know, incredibly uh, tragic and unfortunate event. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, <laughs> this, is a, this is a question with a very complex, multifaceted answer. So I won't, I won't try to give you uh, a comprehensive answer, but let me give you examples of, of how this is happening. I think, I think perhaps the biggest change is this change in default assumptions, the old assumptions of continuity uh, of this too shall pass, of government largesse, of we will keep doing what we've always done. These have been challenged. And I think we are increasingly looking at a uh, future where, because of the government commitment to fiscal consolidation, because of the new technological and labor market realities, there is no going back. And, and, and what this is effectively beginning to do is it is beginning to dilute what I call the thick syrup of culture of these old assumptions of, of continuity. It is pushing people to consider alternatives, to think ahead, to be more forward-looking, whether it is as as individuals building their careers or it is as companies looking for new competitiveness drivers and and, and growth opportunities. This obviously is 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 not an instantaneous process, but I think we have turned a corner and I think it will become a cumulative uh, process where we will see those differences much, much more clearly uh, in, let's say, five years' time. The other area where uh, the pandemic has definitely made a a difference is um, through technology adoption. These, These countries, while... People were very interested in technology. It was it was valued, and these countries have very high, uh, internationally high penetration rates for mobile telephones and and broadband and what have you. Uh, we're not necessarily, apart from the biggest uh, corporates, we're not incorporating digital technology in a way that was integral and was central to business models. Now this is starting to change. First of all, all kinds of digital technology solutions are easily available in a cost-effective way from the regional telcos or, or other businesses. There's, there's much, much more new company creation in this area. And there is the recognition that technology can help you do things that you otherwise wouldn't. And by making companies more Uh, technology-intensive and less labor-intensive, they are becoming more uh, productive, more resilient. I think the other thing about um, the pandemic is that it has created a far greater recognition of the need to build resilience, build capacity for understanding and, and managing risks, 
build buffers for these kinds of, of challenging events, but also push ahead with this economic diversification in a way that is less reliant on on one or two key drivers, such as the, the government, where the financial services sector will be will be doing more and 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 where the economy will be operating on on multiple uh, cylinders. Uh, and I think the the end result of all of this is that uh, effectively the implicit or explicit acceptance buy-in of this structural economic change agenda that has been talked about for such a long time is now much more concrete and much more real than it was before the pandemic. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, well, I suppose the short answer to that question is I've sort of gone back to the to the original project <laughs> or, the, or the earlier project, which is the long long uh, term development journey, uh, uh, really starting from the prehistoric times and 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 looking into the future. And of course, this COVID uh, episode has has added its made its own contribution to that narrative, but. But really, um, to me, the, the big issue is the, the region has gone through these quite clearly defined chapters in its, in its development, the, the, the sort of more distant history that was very much about trade and, and, and linked to that to an extent pearling. Then, of course, the oil, oil era uh, the rise of what I call the Dubai model or the infrastructure narrative or that kind of splash, which is still part of the narrative. But what does the future hold and, and, and how, how well positioned are the Gulf countries for it today? And, and, and how can they sort of effectively future-proof their, their prosperity in this rapidly evolving global economy? Mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear you're going back to that project because it does sound like a fascinating one. And I hope that when you finish it and it's published that we could have you uh, back at the New Books Network to talk about it. Well, I hope so, too. I'd love to. Yarmo, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All the best.